Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, new modeling numbers have been released in regard to COVID-19. And it could be spread through other means than droplets. Retired General Jim Mad Dog Mattis has come out saying the President of the United States is the first one in his life who does not try to unite the country. The fallout. The Ontario government has hired Jane Philpott to be a part of their COVID-19 data collection. What does that mean? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. First, let's talk uh, about the uh, the pandemic and what is going on and who is uh, uh, doing what and where we are uh, in this battle. Uh, more modeling has come out uh, in the last uh, day or so. Remember at the beginning of all this, we were always very concerned about the modeling. Less about that now, but here's an interesting report from Global News's Brianna Carnegie. Canada is making progress in reducing the spread of COVID-19. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says it's an encouraging sign that the virus is slowing and in some places even stopping. But I want to be very clear, we're not out of the woods. The pandemic is still threatening the health and safety of Canadians. He says the situation remains serious in areas still seeing large numbers of new cases and in long-term care homes. While we start loosening some restrictions, we also have to strengthen other measures like testing, and contact tracing. Over 93,000 Canadians have been diagnosed with COVID-19. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right, let's bring in Dr. Anna Banerjee, uh, faculty lead Indigenous and Refugee Health, Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto, and she is with us now. Anna, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine. Thank you. Uh, your thoughts on the modeling. I remember when we were at the uh, upside of this pandemic, maybe two, three, four weeks in, uh, everybody was, was demanding to hear what the models were saying and so on and so forth. There seems to be less attention around that now. Is that accurate? Um, likely. I think we've had um, so many weeks, months to, to see what's actually happened. And so we're, we're more focusing on the reality rather than the, the predictions and And what are your thoughts on the new information that we have received in regard to modeling? So it it, uh, predicts quite a bit of deaths by uh, in the next uh, week or so, about the next 10 days. And um, I'm not sure if we're going to have that uh, rapid rise of deaths. I think that there are a lot of issues with the current um, strategies in place and also the modeling. I think the, the big thing is that it doesn't account, the modeling doesn't account for the uh, asymptomatic cases. From what I've seen, that there's a huge number of people that actually get coronavirus and have no symptoms. Um, the other thing is that there's a very high rate of false negative tests. And so, you know, if you look at the literature, it's between 30 and 50% of the people. So the emphasis is really on, um, you know, identifying those people, doing the contact tracing, and trying to contain this virus. Well, there's there's a couple of things where... A lot of people that have symptoms that are consistent with COVID and they get a test and they're told, well, your test is negative, you don't have COVID. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an error because there are probably many people out there that have had COVID or do have COVID, but the test isn't picking it up because it's too early, too late. There's problems with the technique and the the, the test in, is inherently inaccurate. So I think the numbers of people that have had COVID are much, much higher than that as well. 
for months we were told uh, if you have symptoms, stay at home um, and you don't need a test. And so there's a, many, many people that stayed at home, never got tested. Right. And if they get a test now, then, you know, that means that they likely don't have COVID now, but they may have had COVID at any point in time in the past. And so I think that there is some uh, some issues with the numbers. And I think the whole strategy, in some ways, you know, to test and, uh, you know, contact trace, well, it makes sense to a certain degree. But again, recognizing there's a lot of people that have been exposed that have no symptoms. And if they're saying, okay, you have symptoms, but your test is negative, so go on, live your life. I think then then you you've got this big loop where where people who are symptomatic have covid but have a negative test they are not being told that they have covid they're not being told to stay at home and there's no contact tracing going on there so I think that what we need to do is sort of flip this around and I think to say again anyone with symptoms like even if it's a minor cold symptoms uh, should stay at home. Anyone who's potentially been exposed to COVID should stay at home. And that's not really happening right now. Um, the What we need is an antibody test, an accurate antibody test in the future to find out how what percentage of the population has actually had COVID. And I would get, guess it's much, much higher than uh, what we're focusing on, the positive tests for COVID. I think the other thing we need to do is as people are, as things are opening up and people are being more exposed and people are going to parks and petitions and that, that is going to happen eventually. And people, you know, whether I support it or not, people are starting to go out there. They're yeah. starting to socialize and, and gather and that. And that's probably um, something that it's going to be difficult to control. But what we need to do, and people will get infected. And I'm sure that there is widespread, I believe that there's probably widespread infection already out there, uh, where, and we're only picking up on the tip of the iceberg that, that people that get really sick or have a lot of symptoms and the people that are going for testing. But I think really what we need to do is as people get the infection and they have, they hopefully develop immunity uh, towards it, we need to cocoon or build a fortress around really the people who are at risk. So that's the long-term care facilities. We have to protect them because, you know, 80, 90% of the deaths are in these long-term care facilities or people with underlying conditions. And also to put the resources behind um, and testing behind indigenous communities. The rest of us, you know, even if we try to physically physical distance and we should try to do the best we can, but as I think as people socialize, people are going to get infected and most people it will be minimal or no symptoms or, you know, some people more significant symptoms. But really, you want to protect the people the most that are at the highest risk of dying. So right. put the money and the resources towards that. Uh, getting back to the testing, and you talked about how, and, and we've, we've had this discussion since the beginning of all this, uh, depending upon when you test the person uh, in, in the process of infection, whether it will be positive or negative or, or those that have to come back a day or two later and get tested again and get a different result, are these tests within themselves consistent? And by that I mean, are we doing the same test every time or are there different variations of it? Is that adding to the confusion? 
I'm not sure what each hospital or what each region or, or what each province is doing, but I think that there are variations in the kind of testing. It's a genetic test. It's called a PCR. There's probably very different PCRs that are out there. And I don't know if the PCR is based on the original um, gene uh, makeup of the virus coming out of Wuhan, and it's possible that the virus has mutated, and maybe that's another reason why we're not picking it up as much as we should be. But there, but I think that when we keep focusing on the mantra of testing and uh, uh, treat, uh, you know, isolating contact tracing, when you're missing, you know, maybe 50% of the people, we're not going to be able to contain this by that strategy. I think it, so. There, I think we need to speak louder that this test is not perfect. And I've spoken personally to Dr. Tam, to people in the Ontario Public Health and Toronto Public Health, AMOH is there, and I've spoken to them personally to say, you know, we need to do things a little bit different because this test, you know, we're, we're putting so much emphasis on this test, and it's not a perfect test. It's actually far from perfect. And we need to go back to saying, if you're symptomatic, stay at home. Um, we are uh, a week or two after the general reopening, the long weekend in May and such. Are you where we thought we would be once these regulations started to be lifted? I think we're, we're having a lot more uh, testing of people who are asymptomatic or had symptoms a long time ago. Um, and, and so we're picking up some cases, but I think... Like, for example, there was the, the petition, um, the protest last weekend. I'm not seeing a huge rise in cases from the petition. I'm not seeing a huge rise in Trinity Bellwoods. And again, we're only seeing, I'm only seeing a small number of people, even though I've, I've talked to hundreds of people. Um, but, but the huge spikes that we were seeing, like, you know, at the very beginning when we started doing some of this, we'd see, you know, for a week or two, it was all long-term care facilities that we were screening. Then the next week, it was hospitals. And then the next week, it was grocery stores and that. And I think it's just this virus is, is like a fog. It's going from different group to mm. different group than might be, you know, again, grocery stores. Wherever there's a group of people um, where they're, they're, most of the people are seronegative, the virus will probably go, and there will be outbreaks, just like the, the now we've seen some outbreaks in um, um, New Brunswick. You know, it's, it's, that's, you know, where, you know, what we're doing really is slowing down this virus, and I don't think we can completely contain it. I think until we get a vaccine or until there's enough people who've already had it and there's herd immunity. You've made this almost sound like uh, chasing a mouse here. So is yeah. the idea, rather than trying to, again, chase this mouse through society as it reopens, your emphasis is on isolating, concentrating on those who are more vulnerable. That's, That's where the right. focus should be. Yeah, I mean, there are going to be some people who are younger who don't have underlying conditions that might get really, really sick. And, um, you know, we, again, that's why we try to do the physical distancing. But when, when I know of people getting sick who are staying at home, only using a mask, maybe gloves, going into grocery stores as their only contact, maybe once a week, and they're still getting sick, I, I, you know, more and more there are ID specialists that are starting to think that this is airborne. When you have like a whole boat of 
full of people who are sick, and many of them have never stepped outside of their room, and they're all getting sick. You start say, is this is this airborne or is this transmitted through the sewer system? It just there's something for me. It's just not making sense that this is just droplet spread. And I think it is going as as we open things up, it is going to be spread. But we're not seeing huge numbers of people getting. Um, uh, sick, and I think it's because a lot of people have had it, or they're getting, they're having minor symptoms, or they're asymptomatic. So, I think again, the people that are dying are the elderly, and so we need to focus. And, and I don't know what's going to happen in Indigenous communities, but we need to put the money and the resources. Maybe we don't need to pay for every single person to be at home. Maybe we need to put that money to say, you know, if you're sick and you have underlying conditions, then stay at home. And the first time I've heard this could be more than droplet spread. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, okay, so now we're, we're also dealing with social unrest in North America, marches, demonstrations, and such. Will this be a test? Well, I think that there were, were increased numbers in the United States. And as, um, you know, with the petition, the protests, um, it, it, I think that as there are more protests and more people getting together and not wearing masks, people are going to get infected. Uh, I don't know, you know, you, you do the best you can. You tell people to physical distance, to wear the mask, but people will get infected. And, and I think the rates, I don't remember, I think a couple of days ago it was like 20,000 new cases um, you know, in the United States, I think it was reported a couple of days ago. You know, it's it, the numbers are going up, and most people, again, most people that are many people who have coronavirus, we don't even know they have it. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But it's it's interesting that from the last week's petition, we still have another week to go. We don't see a huge rise like what we would expect in Toronto. Um, so that, and that, that makes me think that either people have had it or they're asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. And, uh, and I think that there is much more spread than we're aware of. What is your message to listeners heading into uh, a weekend after 12 weeks of this? If you have symptoms, even if they're minor, stay at home. Yeah, don't, don't, you know, it doesn't matter what your test says. If you, even if you have a mild cold, stay at home. You know, in the time of Corona, um, you know, a mild cold could be Corona, right? So just stay at home, um, you know, do the physical distancing, wash your hands. I know people are going to, it's, it's nature. People are going to start, uh, you know, socializing as, after they've been sort of isolated for so long. Try as much as you can to physical distance, pay attention to the rules. But if, again, if you're sick, you know, your boss may not may your boss may want you to come in and you just have a cold and you think I should really go into work. Don't do it because if you go in and you have minor symptoms and a whole bunch of people get sick at your work, it's not worth it. So just you know any kind of mild symptom, just stay at home. Just another reminder of how little we really know about uh, this disease. Dr. Anna Banerjee has been with us, faculty lead, Indigenous and Refugee Health, Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Thank you for the opportunity. Anytime. And we will talk again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, I, I've said many times on this show I, I, that, that what does it for me for 
the president of the United States is he is continually dividing people, continually. And I understand this was even his plan in business and such in his private life. Uh, but he's c- continually pitting one side against the other. And uh, during a crisis, whether it's a war, a pandemic, what have you, uh, a social unrest, you, you can't bring be- people together if you are divisive. You either unite or you divide. And interesting note from retired uh, General Mad Dog Mattis, who has come out saying the president of the United States is the first per, uh, president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the people, which is a point that uh, ha- has come up again and again. Here's a clip of the president uh, talking about the memorial for George Floyd. Hopefully George is looking down right now and saying there's a great thing that's happening for our country. There's a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. This is a great day for everybody. This is a great, great day in terms of equality. All right, uh, let's bring in a Matthew, F- uh, Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian, uh, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor to Global News. He has a column on this uh, on our website. Matthew, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, how significant is it that someone as, uh, uh, well, someone with the, uh, the uh, uh, position of General Jim Mattis says something like this, and others have said the same, but this one in particular? Well, I think it is an extraordinary event because of who Mattis is. He is uh, an almost mythical warrior. You know, they call him the warrior monk. His his radio tag was chaos. He's regarded as the most formidable intellect, probably, that the United States military has produced in several decades, but also a great champion of the troops. And uh, I've seen him and I've seen the troops around him. It is quite extraordinary. And he has gone out of his way, as so many American military commanders have, to not personally attack the president, even though they thought so much of what he has been getting up to uh, since he won power four years ago or nearly four years ago uh, was nuts. And now, finally, he has felt compelled to move. I think there are two reasons why. Obviously, the videotape murder, the grotesque uh, event that took place in Minneapolis that has caused this paroxysm of violence and also a paroxysm of serious uh, sober reflection in the United States about race uh, race relations. Uh, But the second part of it, which is also a big one, is that uh, Mattis, and now since he's spoken, some other admirals, generals, former directors of the CIA, that uh, Trump was attacking the U.S. Constitution and the very idea of democracy itself by sending combat troops uh, out into the streets of, for example, Washington, the 82nd Airborne, an elite unit, the number one on-call unit to defend America's interests overseas, uh, brought in basically... Uh, to uh, act as a protective wedge for the U.S. president. That's not how it's supposed to happen. So very significant remarks. And Canadians have to remember, we forget, Scott, just how important to Americans uh, uh, their military commanders are. Going back to uh, Patton and going back to MacArthur and and Eisenhower, uh, these legendary American commanders, uh, and and now, of course, uh, Mattis, when they speak, America listens, not just the troops, but the country.
So um, how is this being digested in the United States? Are people looking at this like, well, here's a person of significance who is speaking up, or is it, hey, you know what, you're a military guy, and if you're as good as you say you are, you wouldn't be commenting now on what any president is doing? Well, there's certainly been some of that, uh, uh, that he shouldn't have commented. He kept his powder dry for a very long time. Uh, The fact that uh, all the American television networks, all of them, plus the New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post, all made this their biggest story when there are so many stories out there related to uh, the uh, recent demonstrations in the United States and also related to the coronavirus. This was the number one thing. This is a very, very big deal. And Trump, of course, reacted by saying, I'm the guy who fired Jim Mattis until another Marine Corps general who had been his chief of staff said the president doesn't remember the facts properly because, of course, he did not fire Mattis. Mattis left. He was fed up. He couldn't take the stench uh, of the Hmm. Trump uh, White House anymore when he was the secretary of defense. Now, whether this means anything, Scott, to the elections this fall, who knows? Trump uh, seems to be the Teflon man. He seems to be the cat with so many lives, uh, no matter whether it's about Clorox or some of the outrageous things he's also said previously about Hispanic people, his uh, great admiration for Vladimir Putin, uh, his uh, uh, sexual assaults on women before he was named president. All of this, would uh, a mere mortal would have... Uh, not been elected, but he's got elected, so I'm very reluctant to say he won't get re-elected in the fall, but his numbers are, for the first time ever, really collapsing, and he's going to have a heck of a time. And Mattis basically has challenged the American people, saying, it's up to you, Uh, there's an election in the fall. He didn't say there's an election in the fall, but it's up to you. And they have the power to change the president if he behaves so badly and so outrageously and defies democracy, defies the rule of law, and thinks he is a law unto himself. Matthew Fisher is with us, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Um, Matthew, not so much that he spoke out, but even what he said. And we've talked about this on the show several times. Uh, the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the people. Um, again, we've talked about how that's what he does. He does not unite. He, he divides and conquers. How can you possibly lead through any crisis, whether it's a pandemic, uh, social unrest, whether it's a war, uh, if you can't unite people? Is, this, is he destined to fail because of this? Well, he's destined to fail, certainly for that. Uh, his presidency will fail, whether he gets reelected or not is something else. But historians are going to judge him uh, very, very, very poorly. But what he has done in every case when there's been a crisis is he has personalized it. Leaders do their very best to not personalize it at all and speak for the public good to unify people, as you were just saying. And Trump has done the opposite. It is always about him. He sees enemies lurking everywhere, and his comments, his comments about blacks, his comments about Hispanics, his comments about uh, Hillary Clinton before. You know, I don't like Hillary Clinton at all, but you, some of the things he said about her were just 
absolutely outrageous. And I don't know how Americans elected him last time, but they do have a chance to spare themselves four more years' trouble. And for us as Canadians and also just as citizens of the world, we need American leadership. China is ascendant. Russia is still causing problems. Uh, this coronavirus has given us a huge economic problem. And Trump is spending all his time still tweeting and sending out uh, insults, many times gratuitous insults about uh, about everything. That is not leadership, and that is not trying to bring America together. The economic fallout alone in the United States and the pressure that will be putting on minorities such as the blacks is already incredible, but will be much bigger in the, the weeks, months to come. And he's got to speak for those people, too. They are American citizens, whether he chooses to think they are or not. Um, obviously, another weekend coming up, and there uh, are reports of other marches and demonstrations on the way. But we have certainly seen since uh, the, the four, officer, uh, four officers in Minnesota were charged, uh, the the violence toned down. How does the president handle and in very much gloating about that today and taking uh, uh, taking uh, credit for him going in and his strong arm tactics stopping the violence? What happens when these mo- uh, protest marches uh, continue and they're free of violence? How is he going to answer that? Well, it becomes harder for him. He can take credit if he likes, but also a a great number of American leaders, military leaders, civic leaders, um, community leaders uh, in in, uh, parts of the United States where there are very large black populations. They all spoke again and again and very strongly for calm and that this was not the way to behave. And and I think that has had a, a bigger effect than bringing out the guns into the street. Because normally when you do that, you just get more pushback from the people. So I think they are heeding uh, the people who say uh, calm down rather than Trump, which is you try anything and we're going to knock the hell out of you. Uh, But of course, he's going to take credit for that. For the first time in a while, there's somewhat encouraging economic news in the United States today uh, about the unemployment rate and job creation and uh, the stock market is up today. And Trump, of course, is going to take credit for that. He'll take credit, Scott, wherever he can. The fact of the matter is U.S. military support was 63% before he sent regular forces, troops to the Mexican border. That dipped to 43%. They're quite a large community of voters in the United States. Who knows what they're going to do now? But uh, they are definitely part of his base almost every. American soldier I know and Marine is a Republican. Uh, That presents a real problem. He's losing now very badly in Ohio and a few other states that he carried when he was running against Hillary Clinton. He's got a very tough mountain to climb and an awful lot of prominent Americans are against him. And Mattis is the leader because of his stature. Canadians don't quite get it, I think, about how important it is what he had to say. Now, whether it makes a difference or not in November, who knows? They elected him last time. They could elect him again this time. But this certainly does not help his re-election chance. 
A blistering critique from General James Mattis will rattle Donald Trump. That is the column on our website now. It is by Matthew Fisher. Matthew, thank you so much for the time and insight. As always, uh, much appreciated. Be well this weekend. Thank you very much. I greatly enjoy speaking with you, Scott. Until next time. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The unemployment numbers uh, for the country unveiled today, uh, sitting at about 13 percent unemployment rate. Uh, Also, the uh, interesting note from the Bank of Canada, they've said the impact uh, of the pandemic on the economy may be at its peak. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, I hope you're doing well. Thanks for taking the time. I am well. Thank you for joining for being with you today. So unemployment numbers, I remember talking to you before about these, and you always thought that perhaps they were higher than what they really are. What are your thoughts on what we're seeing today? Right. So they they are higher than what they are, and here's the reason why. If someone says, I'm not really looking for work, I'm unemployed, but I'm not really looking for work, we take them out of the equation. So today we have a funny story. Uh, The number of people employed in Canada went up by about 1.8%. It's one of the biggest gains ever in recorded history in terms of the number of jobs that went up, but at the same time, the unemployment number went up. Well, wait a minute, if we created these jobs, why has the unemployment gone up? And the answer is that people who were sitting on the sidelines in May said, well, let me, let me try to get back into the job market. So the number of people went up, and that's the funny thing. More jobs are created, but at the same time, more people are looking, and that's why unemployment ticked up a little bit. The other funny thing about these numbers, and this, again, makes it really hard for people to follow, uh, we took a snapshot, but that snapshot happened between May 10th and May 16th, i.e. before the long weekend. So if you look at the numbers, for instance, uh, Quebec's numbers look pretty good, but Ontario's numbers don't. Well, Ontario didn't really crack open the door in its economy until after the long weekend, and here we are at the end of the first week of June. Uh, the situation has changed so much. So April, to me, was probably the worst month. May, the door starts to crack open a little bit. June will be better still, and we are starting to climb out of the crater that COVID created. So the Bank of Canada saying uh, that we could, uh, as far as the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on the economy, may be at its peak. They do say May. How do you interpret that? Well, I agree with them. Uh, In fact, I think we've, we've had the peak. I think the peak is actually behind us, and we're we're starting to climb out of this. But the big caveat on all of this is assuming no second wave, assuming that the worst has happened, that we're, we're social distancing, that as we crack open, we're not going to cause more problems. That's why we're opening more slowly than we shut down. But if we do it right, we should be able to get this behind us. Now, the whole trillion-dollar question is, will there be another wave of this, perhaps in the fall or perhaps during the winter, And if there was uh, pockets of outbreaks, and this is the way it always begins, it starts as a pocket, how would we treat that pocket? Because we really can't afford to have another shutdown like this. So we're going to have to approach it quite differently than we did the first time around to avoid these economic consequences. But seriously, just before he retired this week, the outgoing governor of the Bank of Canada, Stephen Polo, said that we're actually tracking, if you look at the economy, we're actually tracking to one of their best-case scenarios for the pandemic. We are nowhere near their worst-case scenario. So that's a very hopeful sign. We've just got to keep all of that positive momentum going. Uh, Donald Trump on this morning, uh, uh, and again, uh, applauding the same sort of numbers down there. Uh, your thoughts on that? 
Well, American uh, uh, unemployment changed more than it did in Canada. In fact, it, it we shocked us all. The unemployment rate dropped by about 1.8%. But we've got to remember, too, that in the United States, the reopening started against all advice much earlier. You can think of, uh, remember, Florida opening the beaches and Texas telling people back, in particular Republican governors following Mr. Trump's advice to reopen. So jobs started to recover more quickly. On the other side of the coin, if you look at the infection rate, it's not falling as fast as it is in Canada. So they're going to pay the consequence of having more infections longer. And then in my mind, for a consumer, when will they be able to declare that COVID has been defeated? We may may be able to declare that faster. In other words, if you look at Canada today, eight of 10 provinces have more or less shut down COVID-19 completely. No, Ontario and Quebec still have a number of cases, but even in those provinces, those cases are limited to the most large urban areas, particularly the Toronto and Montreal. If you're in Thunder Bay, North Bay, Windsor, uh, even someplace like Kingston, COVID is more or less in the rearview mirror. That is not the case in the United States, but economically, they've gotten some things going. And, and Mr. Trump very clearly is pinning his reelection hopes on a strong economy come November. Um, uh, we're obviously uh, listening to the uh, premier today. He talked uh, about opening a stage two coming up sometime next week, or we'll certainly hear something about that next yeah. week. Once we get to a stage two and the next set of re- uh, regulations are relaxed a bit, what will we see? How will that be reflected in the economy? Well, a, a key thing, I think, in stage two is that many of these non-essential businesses that involve the, the tourism and leisure sector will be able to reopen. We know, for instance, that at midnight tonight, rental accommodations, hotels, motels, campgrounds will be able to do some reopening. The hope is that perhaps by the middle of next week, uh, restaurants will be able to reopen, probably at 50% capacity, maybe with expanded uh, patios, again, to cause some physical distancing. Uh, In terms of airline travel, that's going to be a phase three industry before we can take off all restrictions. But even Air Canada today has announced that for domestic travel, they've got a bit of a seat sale trying to get people to think about vacationing in Canada. These are all the green shoots necessary to come back. But uh, to his credit, Mr. Ford is not reopening the economy, I think, too quickly at all. He's, He's letting the data tell him, let's try this, let's see how it works, and let's go from there. Uh, Will, do, do you think if there is a second wave of sort, I mean, there, you know, they, we're, we're seeing increases now be, you know, I'm sure due to the reopening post a long weekend and such. Uh, if there is a second wave, how big does it have to be before it will affect the economy again? Well, it, really, the question is, is it broad based or is it in clusters? So the one area that COVID is still uh, wreaking havoc tends to be in our seniors, especially in some of our seniors' homes. You've seen in the last week Doug Ford announced taking over operationally some of the seniors' homes, but they're clearly being watched. Those are the most at-risk communities. Um, the, if it was broad-based, in other words, it was affecting people of all ages and all communities across the province, that would be much more detrimental. But if it is targeted, then we might be able to put in targeted approaches and say, well, let's let's shut this thing down or let's close this back. Let's put the damper on that area. And so far, that seems to be the way it's happening here in Canada, that if there is some, some COVID still out there, it seems to be in very targeted areas. 
Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Be well this weekend. I will. Glad to be with you. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. Uh, interesting news, which I'm sure uh, the premier will uh, touch on. Jane Philpott going to be working alongside the Ontario government uh, in regards to COVID-19 data collection. Henry Jasek is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Thanks, Scott. So what are your thoughts when you heard this announcement? I'm sure we're going to hear more uh, coming up at the uh, Premier's press conference, but what are your initial thoughts? Well, I think, you know, Doug Ford has realized that he has to do a lot of um, things that are important to deal with the health, uh, you know, crisis that we're in. Uh, and that, but however, a lot of these uh, measures are very inconvenient to people, and uh, they're not the happiest that they have to do them, although most of us are doing it. Uh, and I think he uses his justification, he says it often, is he's following the advice of a great medical team around him. And so he just had the opportunity to add, you know, someone with a very high uh, ex- uh, acceptance rate as, a, as, a, as an important medical figure. Dr. Jane Philpott, the incoming uh, director of the uh, School of Medicine at Queen's University. So he uh, he added her to his team. She's going to do something about uh, determining what kind of uh, platform about public health data. I'm not exactly sure what that is going to entail, but uh, but nonetheless, she he's he's basically beefing up the uh, the medical advice that he's getting and sort of as a way of justifying decisions he has to make that may be unpopular with the population. Uh, obviously a very high-profile uh, uh, expert mm-hmm. and certainly part of the Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, fiasco of way back when. Uh, obviously she is incredibly knowledgeable. She went and helped out at Markham's Participation House uh, way back when, when they were in uh, a crisis, but from a political standpoint, or, or is this irrelevant? Uh, politics irrelevant, as I've been preaching for the last 24 hours. Uh, and is this just all about getting the best people there? Well, the best people there, but I mean, she does really, uh, you know, uh, come along with some characteristics that would make her very attractive to the general population of Ontario. Uh, she's had a long experience in, in public health. Uh, she clearly was a uh, you know, uh, a well-known person with expertise when she was selected by the Liberal Prime Minister to be his uh, Minister of Health uh, in his first term. Uh, and uh, certainly she retained a great deal of popular support, uh, maybe not enough to to win her, her seat back in the, in the last federal election, but certainly she has a, a great deal of popular support uh, around the province, around the country. And it adds, it makes the... Um, makes the advice that the premier is getting to see seem to be nonpartisan or bipartisan that it's that he's inclusive he doesn't hold it against anybody that happened to be a liberal and uh, he uh, and, which is i think a very wise strategy on his part and and of course she has great advice to offer i don't think anybody would falter uh, and I would like to point out oh, there's a little local connection. She is incoming director of uh, School of Medicine at uh, Queen's University. She was appointed uh, there by uh, the new uh, vice chancellor and, uh, at, at uh, 
at Queen's University, Patrick Dean, who for nine years was the president of McMaster University. He left last summer to become the vice chancellor and CEO of Queen's University. So there's a little local uh, connection there with that decision. But I think everybody recognizes, you know, if you have someone like Jane Philpott working with you on, on a medical problem, then you're probably doing okay. Uh, obviously, this is an incredible time to be a leader, whether it's at the municipal level, uh, uh, the provincial level, uh, the federal level. It's a very, very difficult time uh, to be a leader. And we, as we've said many times, we see leaders make uh, made and broken during periods um, like this. What is What does a leader have to do to not only convince the, uh, keep the public calm but convince them mm-hmm. that they're moving forward well he has to uh, he or she has to convince them that first of all that he is getting great advi- he or she is getting great advice and that uh, that they are following expert advice in order to keep especially on a medical issue i mean i think the people recognize on a lot of issues of course the the leader is going to be a partisan and follow his party's uh, principles and ideology. They would expect that. But when it comes to medicine and public health, that is a, that's a different kind of issue. There, I think people do not want a partisan leader. They want somebody who is going to go out and get the me- best medical advice, somebody who's going to go out and get the best medical data and, and, and use it as a justification for the decisions he has to make because people are going to be negatively affected at least in convenience if they follow those decisions i mean these are very inconvenient things uh and painful things in the, economically and in terms of enjoyment of life that the premier has to demand of us in order to try to you know wrestle down to re- reasonable limits the impact of this very terrible virus that that we have now and he has to maintain the trust and he has to essentially look like he walks the talk he has to Look like he's following the uh, that trust as well uh, his his own advice to everybody else. As we know, the premier has had a couple of bumps there. <laughs> uh, one visiting his cottage when he told every recommend to everybody they don't go to his college, and then on and then on Mother's Day having uh, more people there in his house uh, who he should have had, uh, even though they were uh, family members. So he, he had a couple of bumps uh, there. Uh, and he's so he basic, but he's he's shown himself to recover. He recognizes he makes a mistake, and he tries to recover by by essentially drawing in better, you know, people who who can give good advice, who have a lot of stature, uh, and and ha- have evidence for him. And and he goes and he he follows it. So uh, we have to give credit to the premier for what he's done here. Uh, people, uh, I, we've been doing this obviously for 12 weeks now, um, where every day we're covering uh, these press conferences. It's easy to see now that uh, the press is becoming frustrated with the prime minister's daily uh, news conference mm-hmm. uh, because of not answering questions. At what point during a crisis like this do you? Because most leaders do well during a crisis, and then there's the fallout of that crisis. What about Trudeau on the way down this curve, and and how long can he keep doing this and ha- and have it be a positive experience for him? Yeah, well, that's true for him. I think uh, true. It could be you know it could be true for the for, for uh, Premier Ford. Although Premier Ford tends to bring out I think more newer things every once in a while than Trudeau. Trudeau seems to be 
almost mechanically saying the same things over and well, over. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been sitting here, Henry, for, for 12 weeks writing, and I, right in front of me i got a stack of notes from every single press conference from both, and it's to the point now where, you know, there's not much to write down with the prime ministers, whereas perhaps because with the premier it's local and it has more effect on, on, on us, yeah. but there just doesn't seem to be anything new there. No, I, th- I think you're right, and, and I think one of the problems and, uh, you know, political scientists have studied crisis leadership, and there's plenty written on it uh, that I've read and talked to my students about over the years. Oftentimes in a crisis, uh, basically more studied in the U.S. than here, but usually after three months people get tired. They, they no longer, they've gotten used to the crisis, and for them it's no longer as much of a crisis as it was uh, three months earlier. So I, I think in general I would expect that, you know, a leader has three months to basically, you know, do, do, uh, do whatever he needs to be done there, but after that he has to put up with people who are getting tired of things. And so, uh, you know, people are getting tired of the rhetoric uh, and, the, you know, the same language being used over and over again by Trudeau, which doesn't answer the question. That just seems like he's, you know, uh, you know somehow he's a wind-up uh, wind prime minister. <laughs> you ask him the question and somebody winds him up and out comes whatever comes out of, uh, out of the uh, voice box. Of the that being said, I, I would certainly take uh, all of this c- compared to what the, is, is going on south of the border. Oh, I can't yeah. let you go, and we've only got a couple of minutes left here before sure. the premier speaks. But your thoughts on, on Donald Trump's divisiveness, can this continue to work? Is he destined to fail because he, even during a crisis, when everyone unites, that's why their numbers go up, he still seems to be picking fights? Well, he, the thing is, there are, I mean, if you look closely over, over time, uh, you know, there is a, a shrinkage in his base. They, you know, they all, all the pundits say he's keeping his base, but his, the size of his base is shrinking. And certainly it's a negatively affected people uh, who are independents. And so he is, he is, he, he is shrinking that, uh, you know, and it's not dramatic, but it, you can just see the erosion. And now, of course, I, I think maybe, you know, you've had, you had somebody on who talked about his, you know, trying to manipulate the Bible and, 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 and posing in front of a church and whether that worked well for him. And, no, that didn't seem to work well with them all. I think he's just grasping at straws, and he's just trying to do anything to sort of turn it around, and he's, he's really having a lot of trouble. And then ultimately what he does is he goes back to fighting the two six, 2016 presidential election, so now he's off to, to Maine uh, to, to, to do something up there. But he's just itching to basically recreate what he did in 2016 but he's like a general who tries to fight the last war, and generally that's not a good idea because usually uh, the conditions change, and he's just desperately trying to do that. And I just don't think it's going to work. I mean, there are two aspects to being president of the United States, different from our prime minister. He's commander-in-chief, uh, he's the, which is the CEO of the United States, but he's also the head of state. Now, the, chief, the, the, the CEO follows the party, uh, his own principles, his ideology, that's how he got elected. But when you're the head of the state, you essentially do what a, what a monarch would do, except the Americans don't have a monarch, and that is to pull people together um, inclusively whenever there's a crisis facing the country. So we think of the you know Queen's speeches and things of that and times you know rallying around people and trying to pull everybody together. Well, that's, that's half of the job of the U.S. president. And that's a job he does not enjoy. He only focuses on the CEO job, but he does not f- 
focus on the head of state job, and I just think that that is that is his basic problem. He can't. He has never understood what it what, what it really is to be the the president of the United States. Uh, obviously, uh, strong arm techniques when it comes to the protesters now taking credit uh, of the quell and violence, the, the softening of violence uh, that we've seen in the last uh, couple of days. Um, many will attribute that to the charges being laid and increased on the four officers. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, what if these protests, marches, demonstrations continue and they're not violent? Uh, and it's just people marching time after time after time. Can you just pretend that's not happening? Well, he tries to, but, I mean, what's really dangerous when he has these is this is just mobilizing and energizing these people to go to work on the federal election campaign. And we know the big problem that the, that, that, that the Democrats had in 2016 is not enough of their their black voters came, black uh, African-American voters came to, to vote. Many of them stayed home. Now, this has now energized them, and Sorry. these constant marches will energize them, and also will, will energize them, but also all sorts of other people. When you use militarized police, you're going to have things happen which look terrible. And we had one last night in Buffalo. I'm sure you probably have seen it, where the police yeah. pulled, pushed down a 96-year-old, uh, yes. a 79-year-old fellow, falls on the ground, hits his ear, blood is coming out of his ear and out of his head on the, on the walk. And when one of the policemen goes to try to uh, help him, another policeman pushes him forward and pushes him away. And, I mean, uh, that, you know, another yeah. shocking interaction between the police and what seems to be an unarmed, you know, protester. I mean, even, even the Chinese, we look back, we just had an anniversary for Tiananmen Square uh, the rebellion that was quashed there, they did have one famous picture of a, of a, of a student in front of a tank with yes. stopping the tank. Now, even the Chinese communists didn't use the tank and run over. The military there did not run over. They could have easily run over this guy. They didn't do it. And, and I mean, once you, you know, once you have on TV a picture and you're, when you have all these mil- militarized police in there, someone's going to lose his head. And we had one where uh, an Australian journalist uh, was, was uh, banged up uh, a couple of nights ago. These are going to happen, and, and of course, these will be shown on TV, and everybody will get upset again. So the word, it is really a bad idea to have you know all these militarized police, but at the same time, you're, you if you keep the protesters you know basically you know uh, peaceful during the day and get them dispersed before nightfall. Uh, and then you only have to deal with some people who may try to come out at night. Then you're, then you're, then then it's a very difficult position for the president. Very difficult. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, time for our Friday message of hope. Oh, that's what we're calling this: a Friday message of hope with uh, the Reverend Jim Carrier from Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines, also known as Mixmaster Jim back in the day, and he is with us now. Jim, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Scott, I am, and it's uh, hope is a good word, and hope is uh, is a good thing. And we have a nice sunny day uh, here in St. Catharines. How are things where you are? Yeah, the same. We can't complain. There's, uh, it's going to be a nice weekend, that's for sure. Um, obviously, Jim, we've been talking about uh, COVID nineteen and how to get through a pandemic and such. 
Now we are doing, dealing with something else, uh, that being uh, uh, social unrest, social upheaval uh, in regard to the tragic death of uh, George Floyd in the United States. That has sparked demonstration protests across the country uh, in the United States and in Canada and around the world for mm-hmm. that matter. Uh, it seems, Jim, we've got a lot of weight on our shoulders right now. I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic. We were talking about the loss of a snowbird and what had happened in New Brunswick. And now we got this. It just seems like one thing after another for us. We're being tested. Well, I think we are. And um, and I know that it, it, it doesn't sound like uh, very inspirational words at the moment, but these kinds of, of, of this kind of chaos, actually, does result in 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 restored order. So so things are going to get better. I think you know we we're still we're still working toward a vaccine, uh, and then uh, what's happening in regards to the racial tension in the United States. It's opening our eyes here in Canada as to the potential problems that we may have here. Uh, and I think that that you sort of said the key when you were when you were promoting your your the uh, website and your blog is that uh, dialogue is. Is very important, but I think that one of the things that 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 is most important about dialogue is really just to you know to, to get into your corners. If this were a marriage, I mean that's exactly what we would be told to do: just get in your corners, take a deep breath, and let's come back to the table, whatever form or shape that table uh, might take. But it, it's going to call for uh, for really wiping the slate clean, uh, getting back to to the beginning, talking about how all of this stuff happened, going through history in a realistic way and deciding where the problems were and fixing them, uh, like literally fixing them. And it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a monumental task, but it is doable and it is possible. And I think that, uh, that even from the riots, even from this, and, and it did so in the 60s, there was some change, yep. clearly not enough. But, uh, but uh, during that discussion and that, um, that uh, tumultuous time for the United States, change did come about, and we just didn't take that change far enough, and, and we can't. We just, need to, we just need time to do it. Uh, we all saw that video, the grueling eight-and-a-half-minute, whatever it is, of, of George Floyd losing his life and, and taking his last, last breaths. Uh, after that, how can anyone deny there is an issue here? How do we convince those that still think there isn't that we've got to take a closer look at all of this? Oh God, I think the video really should should speak for itself. I mean, and uh, and uh, 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 George Floyd is not an isolated case, and uh, and I think that uh, that if you're not convinced by by that video, I mean, what what is going to convince you? And I think that's that's where the frustration comes from from the black community. They're saying we've been telling you this for. For years and years and years, and and you know we do we keep witnessing it, and, and still nothing nothing gets done. But I think that um, that the racial tensions uh, really are going to spur uh, some discussion. I mean, I hope yeah. it doesn't. You know, I hope it doesn't get worse. As I understand it, that the protests are getting a little more peaceful, uh, which is great. A point has been made, but we can't let it end there, and we just need to keep a dialogue, an open, friendly dialogue and 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 not in the sense of of pointing fingers but in the sense of saying we do have a real problem how can we solve this and uh, and that's going to take uh, most most of the leadership actually uh to sort of to sort of lead the way in that that's you know the ground roots is very frustrated they're they've been isolated for a long time they're very frustrated and uh and i think that it's it's the leadership that's going to have to really truly take handle of these issues and and begin a dialogue we've 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 begun it uh, with Indigenous people here in Canada, again, not all the way just yet, but 
but but it is possible and it is doable to kind of take a look but we have to be willing to look at ourselves not just the other but we need to look at ourselves and say okay what mistakes have we made and how can we make our relationship better well said. The Reverend Jim Carrier has been with us from Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. Another Friday message of hope uh, with Miss Ma- uh, Mixmaster Jim. Jim, thank you so much for the time. Uh, people are actually uh, thanking us for doing this. So let's keep doing okay. it a- again, and we'll do it again next week. Jim, you be well this weekend. And don't forget, you can watch Jimmy on Facebook and see what he does down at Good Shepherd Church. Thanks, Jim. Good luck. All right. God bless, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.